KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the UC grad student employees strike. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. Nelson Lichtenstein will explain the problem is the attestation forms. Also, abortion rights remains a key issue bringing liberals and progressives to the polls in the state legislative elections coming up in 2023. John Nichols will report. And people are a lot happier in Denmark than they are in the United States. Josh Holland has our analysis. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we open today with news of the class struggle in America, a regular feature of this broadcast. Senator Bernie Sanders gave a speech Tuesday night about the state of the working class. It's the sort of thing we don't hear from members of Congress very often. It was kind of a big picture of how are working people doing in America and what is Congress doing to improve their lives? And he pointed out you might think that these very basic questions are discussed often on the floor of the Senate or in the House of Representatives, but if you thought that, you would be wrong, close quote. So good point. Let's look at the big picture. What is the big picture as Bernie sees it? Well, uh, it's not even just the state of the working class. It's the state of uh, what you might call the middle class, the working class, the poor, all of which have sort of porous boundaries, but all of which know they're not really making significant economic gains. Bernie uh, talked about the disgraceful percentage of Americans who make less than $15 an hour and then calculated average rents and things like that and pointed out that uh, there was no way such people could make ends meet. A third of our workforce, 52 million workers, earn less than $15 an hour. It's a lot of people. And uh, that was the kind of thing he pointed out. He pointed out that the ratio between CEO pay and median worker pay, which in the 1960s was about 20 to 1, has now skyrocketed to 400 to 1. And so he dealt with both the concentration of wealth, the fact that the wealthiest 10% of Americans own 90% of the nation's wealth. It was that kind of, that kind of speech, just dealing with the travails, which quite rightly, he noted, are not usually brought up on the floor of either House of Congress, the travails of uh, most Americans and uh, what we need to do to ease or eliminate them. This was more than a cri de coeur, as it were. This was, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, this was sort of laying down what he would do in his new committee chairmanship, the kind of issues he would uh, would continue to raise which uh, he didn't say this, but should the Democrats hold the Senate and the White House and retake the House in the election of November 2024, the kind of uh, proposals he would be putting before uh, the administration and the Congress, just as he did uh, in the lead into Joe Biden's first term. And the what is to be done list is a very familiar one to us raise the minimum wage, Medicare for all, expand social security benefits, free college. 
and not just that th those but also one uh rebalancing of class power yes uh by making it uh much more possible for workers to join and form unions without getting themselves fired that was an important part of his speech as well so Bernie has been giving a speech about income inequality and the political uh, imbalance of power in America, certainly in 2016 and going back to the 80s and even the 70s. We do need to be reminded of this, but is there anything new or different about Bernie's approach or agenda? I'm not sure that there is. I mean, compared to where he was in the 70s, he effectively now functions within the Democratic Party, not formally, but very much uh, as a de facto factor. And uh, he has a significant national following, larger, I suspect, than any self-proclaimed democratic socialist has ever had in American history. So when Bernie speaks, he is not a voice in the wilderness. He is a voice with a lot of folks behind him, a lot of folks who were happy to vote for him and willing to work for his campaigns, and someone who definitely affected positively the agenda of the Biden administration. Not that they embraced it all, of course they did not, but they embraced parts of it. And that was one of the reasons why the Biden administration did push for and win some significant legislation, uh, particularly in the last six, seven, eight months of uh, the last term of Congress. And if Bernie's analysis of the big picture hasn't changed much in the last 10 years, that's because the big picture hasn't changed much in the yeah, last I'm 10 sure years. I'm sure Bernie would be happy not to give that speech uh, yes. because the uh, ills that he described in it had been uh, eradicated. Uh, but as he noted, uh, the imbalance of wealth and power has only grown worse. And so the speech that worked decades ago, if anything, works even uh, e even more pointedly now. George Santos got his committee assignments this week. He did not get appointed to the Ethics Committee. He got the Small Business Committee. And this is interesting because, uh, you know, there's these questions about his claims that he worked for Harbor City Capital, a Wall Street firm, but the Securities and Exchange Commission accused it of running a classic Ponzi scheme that defrauded investors of millions of dollars. So it isn't clear that George Santos personally defrauded investors of millions of dollars, but the firm that he proudly proclaims to have been an employee of did. Uh, is this a good qualification to work for the Small Business Committee? Probably not, but we may have naive ideas as to the purpose of the Small Business uh, yes. Committee. It is not the pro-small business uh, committee. It could, you know, under certain conditions, become the anti-small business uh, committee. And so he may be a perfect fit for that. <laughs> and Marjorie Taylor Greene got her assignment, Homeland Security. Now, this was especially interesting to many of us because we remember uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene was a very concerned about our homeland security with this Jewish space laser that was threatening our homeland security. Yeah, for which the Rothschilds were, of course, uh, you know, behind, uh, although she omitted the learned elders of Zion <laughs> in the process. So that kind of broadens the uh, the scope, I think, of of, of homeland security. 
probably has been focusing too long on what might even be gen- uh, genuine threats to homeland security. It's 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 time it shed those shackles and 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 clearly embraced a, a, a bigger agenda. And Marjorie Taylor Greene probably has one of the biggest agendas of uh, of uh, conceivable threats uh, to uh, to life and limb in America. Well, I saw that she also remarked recently that if she and Stephen Bannon had organized the January 6th insurrection, quote, we would have won, not to mention it would have been armed, close quote. Well, that's a dealing with Homeland Security. Yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's reassuring. And of course, we now have the story of the... Uh, not even close, defeated uh, a legislative Republican candidate in New Mexico, shooting up uh, the homes and actually trying to pop off uh, some Democrats in the process of it uh, in the greater Albuquerque area. So uh, armed Republicans uh, shooting up Democrats it seems to be perhaps even a coming thing. We shall see. Well, now it's time to talk about California politics, the race inside the Democratic Party to succeed Senator Dianne Feinstein. Uh, Last week here, we talked about the news that Katie Porter had announced she was entering the Democratic primary, the first to do so. Uh, We need an update. Uh, You have a terrific article at prospect.org posted on Wednesday with a kind of a rundown of who the likely candidates are and their various strengths and weaknesses, both politically and from a progressive uh, standpoint. But let me, preliminary question, has Dianne Feinstein actually announced her retirement? No, she's not, but neither has she raised any money for next year's campaign. And if she was campaigning, you know, she she is a, has been historically a prolific fundraiser. She's exerted no energy to do that and no energy to put together a campaign t- team. And it is, I think, uh, all but certain that uh, she w- she'll be 91 next uh, by the time uh, of the November election next year and that she's not going to seek re-election. So we talked last week about uh, Katie Porter and what has made her a national figure and a powerhouse of fundraising. Uh, Let's talk about the other people who either are on the way to getting in or almost getting in. Well, Congressmember Barbara Lee, who represents uh, the very lefty district of Oakland and Berkeley in the House, hasn't made a formal declaration, but she's told media, newspapers, that she intends to run. Uh, Barbara Lee is a long progressive history and what's been long a progressive district succeeded someone for whom she worked before she was a member of the California State Legislature, Ron Dellums in that uh, district. Ron Dellums for years was the only avowed socialist uh, in, in Congress and Barbara Lee hasn't bothered to claim the label, but to all intents and purposes is. Her sort of 15 minutes of real fame was when she was the sole member of either house to vote against the resolution passed immediately in the wake of 9-11 to authorize the Bush administration to conduct a war on terror, which essentially meant a war on Afghanistan. At the time, she said she was troubled by the fact that uh, there was no exit strategy, there was uh, no clear definition of who the enemy was. And 20 years later, looking at our venture in Afghanistan, that sounds uh, heretical, though it may have sounded at at the time, 
sounds uh, really prophetic yes. uh, in terms of what what it did. Now, all of that said, the other possible candidates have achieved uh, various forms of uh, national uh, renown and national support only in the last few years. Barbara Lee's case, this was 22 years ago. Nor has she really had to raise any significant amount of campaign funds since she was elected in 2000, because that's the most democratic district you can find in the country. So she's going to have an uphill climb. Also, there's her age could be a factor here. Yes. I mean, one obviously, the reason Dianne Feinstein is not running again is she is clearly suffering the ravages of, you know, sort of diminished mental capacity in some sense. Uh, of age. Uh, She is the oldest member of an already gerontocratic body, the Senate. Barbara Lee is uh, currently 76. And if she were elected to the Senate next year, at the end of her first term, she would be 84 years old. And so the other candidates are somewhere between 20 and 30 plus years younger than she is. And since age is kind of the eliminating factor for Feinstein, it is not a helpful factor for, uh, for, for Lee. And then we have Adam Schiff, the moderate from sort of the San Fernando Valley Burbank area, well known to all Democrats. Yes. Adam Schiff, who's a veteran member of the House, has uh, also been in Congress, uh, I think, since uh, 2000. And somewhat more conservative on like defense issues was one of the one third of House Democrats who voted to authorize the war in Iraq, uh, basically pretty solid on domestic issues, uh, not a member of the progressive left, just sort of a your, your basic center, moderately liberal Democrat. But he achieved, uh, you know, national uh, renown as the, uh, for, he's a former DA and was as head of uh, uh, intelligence for leading uh, the first impeachment uh, proceeding against Donald Trump for Trump's attempt to browbeat uh, then obscure Ukrainian President Zelensky to find something or, or even create something about Hunter Biden that could help Trump uh, in his reelection campaign or else put uh, U.S. aid to Ukraine at risk. He ran that prosecution, uh, the first impeachment proceeding, against Trump. Trump has made him one of his top five or six people you have to hate targets <laughs> on uh, uh, on his Twitter feed. And so even if the final runoff in November 2024 pits Schiff, who has a very large campaign treasury since he's nationally known, uh, pits Schiff against someone to his left like Katie Porter, ain't no Republicans going to vote for this guy because he is, uh, you know, uh, as far as Trump and the MAGA people are concerned, he is the devil incarnate. And there's also been some talk that Ro Khanna might run. He's been on our show. He's represents Silicon Valley. His district has more wealth than most nations of the world. And he's a remarkably progressive person for coming from one of the richest places on earth. He is indeed. Uh, He was actually one of the co-chairs of Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign, uh, supports Medicare for All, supports co-determination, putting a a big chunk of uh, 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 corporation boards in the hands of the workers of of those companies, Uh, clearly uh, a real lefty. In fact, you could imagine 
if he were to enter the field, uh, he would probably have Bernie's endorsement, just as Katie Porter already has Elizabeth Warren's endorsement. So you can kind of see a uh, left traffic jam building up on this this uh, this California freeway that is the race to succeed Diane Feinstein. Now, but let us say Ro Khanna has not declared. No, he may not run. I think he's waiting to see if Barbara Lee can even amass enough resources to stay in the race. If she can't, that would mean you would have Schiff and Porter running, who were both Southern Californians, and no one from the North. Now, if that matters, and I'm not convinced that it does matter, but if that matters, Connor may decide what the heck he would uh, he would jump in. Now, the way the California primary system works, the top two vote-getters face off in the general election in November. Is there any chance there'll be a Republican in the top two? Well, if there are three or four viable Democratic candidates at primary time, it is possible that in particular, one of the, you know, the progressive traffic jam will cancel cancel them out, uh, ensuring that Schiff makes it into the runoff because he would be the only so-called moderate in that field. Uh, and a Republican might sweep through. Now, that Republican would stand zero chance of winning against any Democrat. But it is certainly possible, given the state's kind of crazy jungle primary, as it's called, that that could be the outcome. Although it's, it's again, quite possible that it could uh, pit, uh, let's say, Schiff against Katie Porter. Let us just follow that for a, a moment in a thought experiment. If the November election for senator from California pitted Katie Porter against Adam Schiff, progressive against the mainstream liberal, what do you think would happen? That's tricky. As I said, the main problem for Schiff in that case is no Republican would vote for him because I already hate him. So, you know, that would be a, a, a really interesting test of uh, everyone in California who isn't a Republican, which is to say about 70 some percent of the electorate. I, I would not bet the far I would not would not bet huge amounts uh, at this point on either until uh, we have a clearer sense of how that would go. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the strike at the University of California last quarter. To talk about it again, we thought it was all over. TA's got a pay increase of almost 50%. The winter quarter started out with a great sense of relief and of mission accomplished and a deep desire to return to the normal work of teaching and learning. But just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. On Friday the 13th, the University of California sent grad student employees something called attestation forms asking them to state whether they had been on strike or not. Uh, it turns out they paid everybody during the strike, whether or not they were striking. And now that it's over, they've decided to cut the pay during this quarter, the pay of people who were on strike 
last quarter. Uh, and then this week, they asked the faculty to fill out the same forms with the same idea. Presumably, they'll also try to cut pay of faculty members uh, in the current quarter for the work which they say they did not do last quarter. This has thrown the entire 10 campus system into a state of anger and dismay and frustration. For comment, once again, we turn to Nelson Lichtenstein. He teaches history at UC Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author of 16 books, and he also writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, and The Guardian. We reached him today in Santa Barbara. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome back. Great to be here. You know, as one of our mentors uh, once said, I think it was David Montgomery, a strike is never over, you know? It's, it's just a <laughs> and a continuing struggle. And I think, I think we're seeing this. I would say that from a purely administrative point of view of, they didn't have to do it. They, they, they just chose to reignite the whole thing. I suspect there was some quasi-legal thing that some, you know, you get grants to the university, and if you don't work on the grants, then the government might take the money back. I, I suspect there's some sort of kind of legal administrative reason for this. But, but, the, but the, the general thing is asking you know, people who are either on strike or, or sometimes faculty who, who also were either, either uh, respected picket lines or co couldn't do work to then attest to, to their own sort of statement is is kind of bizarre. Let and me ask, yeah, let me ask about compared to other strikes you have studied. Say, let's just take the, the union that represents the graduate student employees, the UAW. Right, In right. earlier UAW strike, say auto workers strike against GM, right. do they get paid during the strike? And then afterwards, the company <laughs> asked them if they were on strike and- knows it because people have to clock in with, you know, an old fashioned, you know, early 19th century kind of time clock or something of that sort. So the, 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 the no, no striking uh, auto worker ever would attest to the, <laughs> that oh, I wasn't there. No, the, it's, it's the responsibility of the employer. If they want to withhold pay, then it's their responsibility to determine, well, maybe some people were strike, were, were not striking, okay, we'll pay them, and those that were, that were striking, we won't. That's totally the responsibility of the employer, and it's kind of, it's bizarre, and when you think about it, intrusive, and in some, it's sort of almost postmodern. I can use that word. <laughs> oh, my God. Individual striker to attest to their, to their withholding of labor. Now, here's, I would say this, um, when you think about well, this is this is something actually which we will encounter a lot in the next you know decades. Okay, we have institutions like universities or other kinds of kind of you know institutions where the, where the employees uh, have lots of uh, kind of they self regulate their work and there's no there aren't time clocks and they work from home or they don't work from home or they or they collaborate or that one day they work twelve hours a day and the next day they take off. That's that's sort of a new world of work. That's the university. So when before, during this course of the strike, the university or a hospital, for that matter, or something could say, oh, everything is fine. Everything is normal. You can see students are walking across campus. I even saw some professors walking to their offices, you know, I mean, so that they could make that they, they would make that argument. Oh, nothing is really happening. The strike isn't having a big impact. Well, now that she was on the other foot, you know, as it were, mm -hmm. or, you know, where, where, you know, okay, that it was hard to, it was hard to measure, 
but you know we think we did put some pressure on you now you want us to help you measure you know uh and i think that uh, it, this is this kind of a of a of a situation will will occur in lots of workplaces uh in the future and uh i frankly i think it it, it it's a plus for labor because if the uh, uh, the administrators know something's happening on their on their workplace, um, you know, work isn't getting done, but they can't measure who's not doing the work. Well, that's a plus for labor. <laughs> now, I know that the union representing the grad student employees has filed an unfair labor practice grievance against the university, saying they have a contract that governs employment and pay this quarter. And that does not permit the university to unilaterally cut the pay of of the employees. Right, right. The, 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 yeah, the, the strike was an unfair labor practice strike. And the, the other element of this as, as a kind of unfair labor practice, it's sort of when you're asking individuals to attest, presumably this is a, has a chilling effect on your right to organize and to remain, become a, be, remain a member of a union. And of course, in a, in a, in a university setting where some people have our tenure, some don't, some want, you know, et cetera, some want, you know, get a full-time job or not. This can definitely have a chilling effect. In the, in the, and I just come from a meeting of, of the faculty association here at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where we um, we discussed all of these things. And and some of the the untenured younger people were, were kind of, hey, what's going to happen here? Uh, I will tell you what we decided to do. Please. Uh, which was to issue a statement saying we, we think this is a, a completely uh, unfair and intrusive and, and chilling effect on the, on the right of collective bargaining, which the university does in fact represent. And we have urged everyone to basically boycott this, this these attestations. Now, let me ask, I have a question about that. The yes, university me. sent out these attestation forms and said, you know, please fill this out and report. Is there a penalty for not doing that? Will they strip you of tenure if you're a faculty member? Will they fire you if you're a TA and you don't return your form? I did not see that. Frankly, I think the university does not have the the organization, the uh, the, the the woman power, manpower to do that. Now, one could see, you know, if if they want to get serious about this, okay, we're going to install time clocks at every in every you know uh, every uh, you know the university building, or we're going to you know they could try to trans utterly transform the university and something like that. I think that would generate a huge backlash on the part of everyone. Um, well, and there's another complicated thing, which is they are requiring that all grading be completed. And if students get a grade for a course, doesn't that mean that the work was completed and the teaching was finished? And that it isn't like the cars didn't roll off the line, that students are rolling off the line with grades. Actually, John, it turns out that that in the fall quarter, some graduate students didn't didn't do the grading. And they um, uh, and and now uh, you know they were on strike. They were on strike, and uh, now the the university in some situations is appropriating money for a, for for to to hire readers to to complete that work that wasn't done, as it were, to to get those cars off the line. Um, but I mean, it's the responsibility of the university if they want to have penalties, if they want to if they want to transform the university into a kind of a kind of old-fashioned early 20th century kind of workplace. Well, they can do that, uh, but I think the cost would be enormous in both, you know, every way—moral, social, cultural, and educational. So, if the university itself cannot determine who is on strike and who isn't, that's their problem. It's not yeah. ours. 
Now, um, let, let's look specifically at the situation of faculty members, something very close to your heart and to mine. Suppose you say you didn't teach, say, a quarter of your classes in the fall quarter in solidarity with the strike. Does that mean they will dock a quarter of your pay well, this this term? Because as we, we know very well, they always say teaching isn't your only job here. Teaching right. is only one third of your responsibilities. You're also evaluated on how on your research and on your service. So how are they going to calculate the pay deduction for missed classes? Have they said anything about that? Indirectly, and I'll get to that in one second. I mean, that that, that just what you, your question is uh, answered answers itself. That is why it's so difficult and why these attestation forms should simply be ignored. I would say that the, the model that they're using here is, let's say the Department of Motor Vehicles of the state of California goes on strike. Or maybe it, it doesn't, it, it, the, the, the workers there at the Department of Motor Vehicles decide to have a sort of slowdown, you know, and so they are on strike. Well, there are regulations in the, you know, employment, you know, uh, regs that say, oh, if you go on a slowdown, i.e. you don't do as much work, well, then we're really going to dock you. Then that's it. We can actually fire you for that. In, in a way, you're less protected for that than you are actually going on strike. You see what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's the model they're trying to apply to the university. And it clearly doesn't work. The, the, the work of learning is just hard to calibrate. That's a good thing. That's, that's yes. one of the great things yes. about it. Yes. Well, now, another way that the traditional employment works is that supervisors keep track of who is working adequately and who is not. And the university is a bureaucracy, and there are department chairs and directors of graduate studies and so on. So conceivably, they could try to get department chairs to let us use the term narc on uh, their faculty members. I'm, my department chair is refusing to do that, but I'm sure there are some departments that are very anti-union with right-wing chair, chair people in power uh, where they might turn in faculty members and students for failing to meet their uh, responsibilities. I wonder in that situation, does the accused have any right to respond? Is there any forum for adjudicating <laughs> charges of this kind? Very good question, and I think the Human Resources Department at the university should have thought of that before before they issued these. I think clearly it's it's a it, it gets you into a, a real swamp. So faculty members have been fired for cause. I mean, if you don't meet your class, you just you know go off. You clearly you can be you can be disciplined for that, and there are reasons for doing that. Uh, but in this case, it's much more ambiguous, and I think that if the university wants to be a university. With the with the kind of the, the the context which that implies, then this sort of thing just doesn't work and shouldn't work. And I would say that, by the way, at a public university such as we are, department chairs you may call them management, but they aren't. They are not in law management. They aren't. Um, and uh, so, they, and they are, and that means they 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 shouldn't they shouldn't be carrying out those disciplinary functions. Um, I, I do think, from my understanding, on this campus anyway, the deans and and much of the hierarchy on this campus is is, is thinks this is against this the whole thing. Yeah. It's just a, a can of worms. Don't get into it. And yeah. uh, I, I think I think that that word will, will will in fact go up the ladder. I did notice in the letter that came out from the office of the president 
they did cite what you have already mentioned, that they have a legal obligation not to pay people who did not work under federal grant rules and under state budgetary rules. But I wonder if that's actually true. You know, when you apply for a grant, you say, I'm going to hire a research assistant for 20 hours a week, and I'm going to pay him $20 an hour. And then they give you the money to do that. And I don't. And then at the end, they ask, you know, did you complete your project uh, successfully? They don't ask for timesheets on did everybody show up for work every day. So I'm not actually sure that there is a legal requirement that requires penalizing uh, grant recipients or employees of the state in general in this situation. Maybe not. I mean, but you, you can you can imagine a a a, a template in Washington D.C. We're giving a grant to to this uh, Beltway Bandit, you know, who's going to do this, and and to the Rand Corporation over there, and then to the University of California. You know, it's, they're all trying to create you know the same. It's sort of the, the same template. And let's say there's a strike in some uh, defense contractor, you know, in in Utah. Well, okay, we're you know we, we're not going to pay during that strike. So you can sort of see how. But but again, it's it's very hard to shoehorn the, the university and the kind of work we do into the into the kind of thing that a, say a, say a highway department might be doing. Yeah. It's just getting a federal grant or something. Or, like for that. example, you mentioned the Rand Corporation. Yeah. Do we actually know that the Rand Corporation employees are working the right number of hours as specified in their grants? I certainly don't. Yeah, that's right. I would let me make one thing. One of the proposals put forward at this faculty uh, association meeting that I just I just returned from was taking a page from the I guess the '60s is that we will have a, a little uh, outdoor uh, little uh, event where. Everyone will bring their attestation forms and burn them. <laughs> a bonfire. A bonfire. To, a bonfire to burn the attestation forms the university right. is asking right. employees to fill out. Well, Nelson, yeah. we hope you'll keep us posted on the bonfire plans. Nelson Lichtenstein, director of the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy at UC Santa Barbara. Nelson, thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome. Same old story, back again. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. It seems like we just finished the 2022 elections, but we already have some big ones coming up in 2023. And one special election last week has already showed that abortion rights remains a potent political force for liberals and progressives. For comment and analysis, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back. John, it's an honor to be with you. Well, I'm sure you remember that before the November 22 elections, various pundits and polls declared that since it was already five months after the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade, and since five months is a long time in American politics, abortion rights had lost its power as an issue to turn out liberal and progressive voters. And of course, that turned out to be completely wrong. We saw four states where Democrats flipped control of a state legislative chamber, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and my home state of Minnesota. Those were all states that elected pro-choice Democratic governors as well. 
But social conservatives are still working to restrict abortion rights in the states. For example, Virginia, where Governor Glenn Youngkin would very much like to be considered as a 2024 GOP presidential prospect. Tell us about the latest news about abortion rights voting in Virginia. You've set it up very well, my friend. And I think that the core thing to do is, as we focus down into Virginia for a moment, is to recognize this is a national phenomenon. There is simply no question that uh, concerns about maintaining abortion rights are influencing our politics to a far greater extent than the political elites or the pundit class imagined. And so they're playing a lot of catch up. And one of the things that we've been doing at The Nation is paying close attention to special elections and some of these the down ballot elections where you can keep measuring the influence. And Virginia is a, is a real you know, critical battleground because uh, a couple of years ago, Virginia had its, uh, they have off year elections. They, they are in the odd years rather than even. And they elected Glenn Youngkin as their conservative Republican governor. And the Republicans did quite well in the legislature. They won a lot of seats and got uh, a good position in the, in the House of Representatives there, their, their lower house. They also got a pretty good position, but not majority in the Senate. So Yonkin has been trying to pass a uh, 15-week ban on abortion to narrow the access to abortion. It's not the most extreme proposal, but uh, it's, it, it is certainly a limitation of abortion rights. And he's got the ability to move it you know, quite a bit of the way, but he's had a barrier in the Senate. There's one, there was one Democratic senator who was shaky. And so Yonkin felt like if the Republicans could win a special election that took place uh, last week, Tuesday, um, that they could, they could be in a position where maybe they could, could pass this limits on abortion rights. That would be huge to happen in Virginia, a state that had generally been seen as trending in a liberal direction. Well, they had an election there down in Virginia Beach. And the uh, Democratic and Republican candidates, both local, uh, ended up having a huge amount of money flow in. Millions of dollars flowed into that race uh, from pro-choice and anti-choice groups. It became a real referendum in many ways on abortion rights. And though it was a Republican seat, historically Republican seat that had been held by a Republican until it went vacant just you know before the special election, the Democrat won. And the Democrat won, not by a landslide, but comfortably enough. The Democratic uh, winner's name was Aaron Rouse. Now, I understand that he had been a former player for the Green Bay Packers. Did he mention that in his campaign? He sure did. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and rightly so. As a Wisconsinite, I will tell you that anyone who's associated with the Packers should highlight that as a, as a great claim to fame. And no, Aaron Rouse did in fact speak about uh, being a former football player. And he talked about, uh, in his ads even, had video from it and talked about, you know, playing defense, right? You know, making sure that you protect. And, and, and he made the connection between that and abortion rights. And he said, you need somebody in the legislature who's going to defend abortion rights. Um, it was creative advertising. It was, it was smart, good humored. Um, he's a very good candidate. There's no question of that. But again, this was a Republican district. So he had to climb, you know, a few extra steps to win this. And he did. Now, what that did in a couple of levels is a really big deal. It clearly solidified the pro-choice majority in the Virginia Senate. So Glenn Youngkin is not going to get his 15-week abortion ban. 
That's a big victory, one that ought to be noted in the overall national struggle on these issues. But it's also a signal for the rest of this year, because uh, Virginia, the Virginia special election uh, is the first of the special elections that are going to be taking place all over the country. And let's remember that what the Supreme Court did was not ban abortion everywhere. It just gave the states the power to decide whether to further restrict or further protect the right to abortion. So it really shifted everything in abortion politics to state elections. And where else are elections for state legislatures coming up in the, this year? A lot of our, our political class tends to operate on a mode that in even years you cover an election, either for president or the midterm elections for Congress. In odd years, well, then you can go cover a little bit of governing, go back to Washington or whatever. But the reality is, and you know, I, I don't spend time around Washington. I'm out in the, in the country because that's where usually the political action is. But especially that's true in odd years like this. And we're going to see actually a lot of, you know, hundreds of legislative seats decided um, some will be decided in special elections, like the one we've just been talking about. But some states have regularly scheduled elections in an odd year. For instance, this year, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Louisiana will elect governors. Now, what's remarkable about that is two of these states, Kentucky and Louisiana, have Democratic governors, even though they're very, at the national level, very Republican states. So it's important to watch these odd year elections because sometimes they can produce odd results, unexpected results. But also in these states, in Virginia, for instance, the legislature is all up for grabs. There's going to be major legislative elections. You're going to also have legislative elections in a number of these other states. And so as a result, uh, you've got, I think if I'm correct, six legislative chambers that are effectively up for grabs this year. And then because of special elections around the country, including one coming up in short order in Pennsylvania, uh, where there's a pretty close legislature, we have uh, all sorts of places where the 2023 elections could well make a major signal, not just symbolically, but also practically as regards the ability to protect abortion rights. They also obviously give us signals and indications for the 2024 presidential and congressional elections. And what do you consider to be the biggest election of 2023? Oh my gosh, uh, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I love all my elections. I think the Kentucky gubernatorial election is a, is a really big deal because there you've got a Democratic governor running for re-election who has been no great lefty, but he's really held the line on a whole host of issues. I'll tell you where my excitement and interest is going to be is in Mississippi in the governor's race, because Elvis Presley's cousin is running as the Democratic <laughs> nominee for governor or likely Democratic nominee. He hasn't been nominated yet. Brandon Presley. And he's actually a, an elected official, a public service commissioner, a very credible candidate. And he is not above mentioning his cousin. And isn't there also an election in Wisconsin coming up in 2023? Well, I didn't want to brag. But um, of course, the most important election of 2023 is in Wisconsin, my home state, and it is a race for the state Supreme Court. And this is a big deal. The state Supreme Court in Wisconsin is divided between four conservatives and three liberals. And one of the conservative seats is open. If a liberal takes that seat, it will move to a four, three liberal majority. 
that will allow the Wisconsin Supreme Court to protect abortion rights and perhaps most importantly, address gerrymandering. And Wisconsin has one of the most radically gerrymandered legislatures. If a case is brought and this court gets to revisit the question of how legislative districting and congressional districting occurs, um, you could see a, a sea shift in Wisconsin politics to the point where I dare say Wisconsin could be more progressive than Minnesota. I'm speechless. You've, you've, <laughs> you've, you've... Look, I mean, this comes back to big swing elections. And the, the big election that defined much of the modern era in American politics was the 2010 Republican wave election, the first midterm election after Barack Obama was elected president. And you had a real Republican wave in the states. Um, in Wisconsin, Scott Walker came to power. And one of the first things that he did was start restructuring politics. Uh, not, not labor law alone, although he's very famous for that, but restructuring politics in a way that made it easier for Republicans to win. They gerrymandered the legislature to the extent that in some elections, Democratic candidates would get 200,000 more votes aggregated for legislative seats, and yet the Republicans wouldn't lose a seat. And so it's a terrible gerrymander. It's overwhelming. If the court actually looks at it in a fair and honorable way, um, that can be undone. And well, the, the state the, Supreme Court election is in April. I understand there's a primary before that. Yes, in uh, late February. And there are two conservatives running and two liberals, which is great. I mean, it's nonpartisan. So two candidates will come out of it. And theoretically, if the right break occurred, you could have two liberal candidates come out of it. But that's unlikely. What's likely to happen is you're going to get a liberal and a conservative um, there's a former Supreme Court justice running, uh, conservative justice, who got beat two years ago, is very, very conservative. And I think he may have the upper hand. He's backed by a lot of very wealthy people. The two liberals, one is a circuit court judge from Milwaukee and the other circuit court judge from Madison. Either of them, I, I think, could fairly be said to be likely to serve as progressives. Uh, so the primary is a big deal. But I will tell you that if you do get that liberal conservative race in April, it won't just be you and me talking about it, John. Um, <laughs> okay. The whole country will be paying attention to it because this Supreme Court race could end up getting rid of gerrymandering. It could create a situation with fairer maps for Congress where you pick up two Democratic seats in Wisconsin. And just think about that when you have the Republicans only have a five-seat majority in the House. And then, of course, Wisconsin is the eternal battleground state in presidential politics. And you know that the Republicans have been very active in trying to mess with election law, not just in Wisconsin, but all over the country. If you had a, a, a pro-democracy Supreme Court, that could be a huge deal. Last question. I see you have a book coming out next month. Uh, this is one where you've got a co-author. What, what's his name? He's a, I, I think I, I am the lower rung co-author on this book. Uh, but it is Senator Bernie Sanders. And we have a book coming out that uh, is titled, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Fabulous title. If you want to understand many of the issues that divide America and that, that challenge this country, you have to look at it through a lens of capitalism, what it does, how it operates, how it is perverted in many cases by uh, extreme greed, uber capitalism, as we refer to it. And also why we should understand that there are rational, doable repairs, that we can, we can fix a lot of what challenges this country. And so we, use a, we rely a lot on ideas that came from other parts of the world, 
for instance, we interviewed the education minister of Finland hmm. uh, about Finnish education, which is, by all accounts, very good. And uh, <laughs> so at, at the end of the day, hopefully it is an argument that we can and should start looking at alternatives to the way we do things. Doesn't mean you're going to reject you know, everything we do. It doesn't mean that you will adopt holy ideas from other places. What it does mean is that as we start to think about this and think about particularly how we make sure that working class Americans have a fair shake and actually have a chance to live in an equitable and, and decent society, if we build from that, we can, we can realize many of the great dreams for America. It's okay to be angry about capitalism. We'll be talking about this next month. And the month after that, we'll be talking about the Wisconsin Supreme Court election with John Nichols. Right now, you can read his new article, Abortion Rights Voters Are Reshaping Politics at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Honored to be with you as always, John. Thanks for having me. One more thing. Mostly on this show, we don't talk a lot about happiness, but now we want to change our tune and consider this. People in Denmark are a lot happier than people in the United States. For comment, we turn to Joshua Holland. He's a contributor to The Nation magazine and a writing fellow at The Nation Institute and host of Politics and Reality Radio. And he wrote the text for a wonderful new animated video at thenation.com. Josh, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, there are a lot of ways you could compare and contrast life for Danes with life for Americans. How did you decide to do it for this animated video? Well, I wanted to look at the lives of two imaginary human beings, babies basically born in Denmark and the United States, kind of compare and contrast the different systems in which they grow up and fight for what we all fight for, a happy, stable life, uh, a certain amount of economic security. So it was a way of uh, comparing and contrasting European, Scandinavian-style social democracy with kind of the more vicious style of, of capitalism that we have here at home. I'm sure that the Danes are a little bit happier that they don't have Donald Trump. <laughs> well, let me just highlight some of the things that you feature in this wonderful animation at thenation.com. First of all, there's something called a child benefit in Denmark, unknown in America. What is the child benefit? Well, it costs a lot to raise children. And in Denmark, everybody gets a certain stipend. It's the same amount for rich people and poor people. And um, it's one of many different social welfare programs that smooths out the hazards of, of um, living in a capitalist society. How much is the child benefit in Denmark? It's $225 a month. And then um, in, until they reach, I think, age eight, and then it decreases a little bit. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of cash to help with babysitters and stuff like that. One of the things that I, I hope that comes through uh, in this in this little animation is that these are not alien systems. These are not totally different concepts. Um, a lot of people would like to say, well, we live in a capitalist country. They live in socialist countries. Well, in both countries, capitalism is the main engine for economic productivity. And in both countries, a certain sector, a certain segment of the uh, country's economic output is devoted towards the social safety net. And they're not so they're not diametrically opposite systems, 
they are varied approaches to mixed economies, and I think that they reflect a different set of priorities. So, you know, when we look at um, at the Scandinavian countries, well, they pay a little bit more taxes. They definitely do. But they get so much more back for it. You know, I, I think this is one of the things that really stands out. You know, I pay a lot of taxes, and I'm happy that my, you know, my roads are well-maintained, and I, um, I will eventually get a Social Security payment and, you know, all these things that we take for granted. My, if, if my place catches on fire, they'll be here to help put it out. But in the Scandinavian countries, they really get an enormous amount of really obvious benefits for the, for the tax dollars. Let me, let me uh, ask about a couple more of these. We have Head Start for kids from low-income families who meet the eligibility standards, but in, in Denmark, everybody gets free preschool starting at six months if they want. Very uh, high-quality preschool. They can't be charged more than a quarter of their income, and people at the lower end of the income ladder, they don't pay a, a penny. And think about how that, that helps. We talk a lot about work-life balance. Imagine how much easier it is for people to, you know, raise a family and uh, work a job when you know that you could drop off your kid to an extremely high-quality preschool system and not even worry about it. In, in Head Start, we have that covers a tiny fraction of the population in terms of full full-time Head Start programs. Of course, they have very good public schools. They have free college and vacation. Danes get paid vacation. How much? Paid vacation do Danes get? Well, so uh, all Danes get at least five weeks of paid vacation. Certain union members get a sixth, and then they throw in this other kind of random week around the holidays. So most Danes get about seven weeks of paid vacation. And one of the things that I think you need to look at in in, in the bigger picture is that when you account for um, the cost of living, the average Dane, the average American, their incomes are eh, pretty similar but we work a lot more hours than they do. And if you look at the the amount of vacation they get, the amount of hours per week they, they work, they, they have a lot less stress than we do. And one of the things that I think is underappreciated is that there is a lot of stress living in a capitalist society. Um, there's risk. There's inherent risk. This is something that I think conservatives really don't appreciate. They have this idea that there's people who are worthy of benefits and people who are unworthy of benefits. But whoever you are, you can walk out tomorrow and, you know, a piano can fall on your head or whatever. And, you know, we take on most of those risks or much of those risks ourselves as individuals in this country. And in the Scandinavian countries, that risk is socialized. It's spread out among the, the, the population. So if you walk out and you get hit by a piano and you have kids in school, you're going to be okay. You're going to get unemployment. You're going to have uh, health care that you pay very little out of pocket for. Your, your, your risk is reduced as an individual. It's a lot less stressful living in those countries. 
Ivanka Trump has been advocating parental leave, I think it's four or six weeks. I see that in Denmark, they have a full year of paid parental leave that the parents can divide uh, between them. And of course, they have a, a health care system of the kind we only dream about here. Uh, we've only got a couple minutes left here. I want to listen to a clip of what you actually did on the animated video. It's not the usual uh, Nation magazine angry pronouncements and, and alarms about how <laughs> rotten everything is in society. Let's listen to Joshua Holland narrating the animated video about why Danes are happier than Americans. So you get the picture. Emma will have lived her life under the crushing burden of democratic socialism, that combination of state-funded education, health care, parental leave, and plenty of other benefits, has made the citizens of Denmark the second happiest people in the world. And Americans, we're number 15. I got to say, it makes me happy just to listen to that. How did you decide to do it in this in this form? Well, you know, as, as you know, because I've been on your show before, I have yes. a, a terrible disease, which is that I get wonky very easily. So <laughs> I wanted to make this something that was really accessible. And th this was really our... Our goal with this is that we didn't want to write a paper about, you know, oh, look at look at how much social benefits they get and how much social costs are privatized in the United States, blah, blah, blah. We wanted it to be something that, you know, you could watch the cute video and, and see the, the animation. The animation, by the way, is, I think, hilarious. I yeah. love the animation. And, um, and come away with a sense of the differences that, that doesn't require, like, a PhD to understand. <laughs> Joshua Holland, watch his wonderful video, Why Danes Are Happier Than Americans, at thenation.com. Josh, thanks especially for this unwonky uh, effort, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music